Would you turn your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter one this evening, Second Thessalonians? In the second century BC, Romans the Romans constructed a road called the Ignatian Way. And this this road extended from the Adriatic Sea on one side all the way across, if you think about where the Mediterranean is, so it's above north of the Mediterranean. Uh, it, it extended from the Adriatic Sea to the Black Sea, and it went about 700 miles. And this road was very much progress for the people of that day. It made travel extremely easy, particularly for those who would be transporting goods. The roads were made to be about 19 feet wide, and as a result, many of the cities that were on that road or near that road became instantly wealthy. Thessalonica was one of those cities. By the, by the time that, that, start, that happened in the 2nd century B.C., so long before the Apostle Paul came around, but by the time he did come around, by the time he visited in A.D. 50, this city was booming with about 200,000 people, which was a significant number of people at that time. And it was made up mostly of Gentiles, several Romans, Jews, and Asians um, as well. But you can imagine that, that because of their location, that is on a trade route, that there's going to, there's going to be a big diversity of ethnicity. And with diversity of peoples comes a diversity in religion who they worship, false gods. And so Paul comes to a city full of people who are serving any number of false gods. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy come in AD 50. This is part of Paul's second missionary journey. Paul and Silas had been, you remember, imprisoned in Philippi at the end of Acts chapter 16. And in that city, prior to that, they were able to see Lydia come to Christ when God opened her heart, remember? And she was able to see the truth of the Word and respond. But also in that city, as a result of their imprisonment and the, the earthquake breaking off their shackles, opening the prison doors, the jailer recognizes that he's in big trouble. And yet Paul says to him, don't don't do anything here. Don't put your sword in your stomach. We're not we're not going anywhere. We're all still here. And it was it was this critical opportunity in this man's life that Paul and Silas used to actually explain the gospel to this man and his family. And all of them came to Christ, and all of them were baptized. And so, following that, that's Philippi. They come to this city in Thessalonica, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 17. We did that when we looked at 1 Thessalonians, Acts 17, 1-9. Paul comes to the city and he does what he always does when he comes to a city, when they're available, and that is he goes to the synagogue. And he speaks with the Jews who already know the Scriptures, and he reasons with them. And in this specific city, in this particular city, he spends three Sabbath days reasoning in the synagogue. And they don't like it after a while. And so, they, based on my understanding, they remove him 
from the synagogue. They don't allow him to come back. And so he spends his time, like he often does when he's removed from his opportunities to speak to the Jews, he goes to the whom? To the Gentiles. And so he does this and he builds up through Bible studies, I assume, uh, all these all these people who want to hear about God and, and including included in some of those groups were some of the Jews that were there in the synagogue. They liked to hear Paul speak. They liked to hear Paul reason from the Scriptures. Well, after this takes place, some months later, there's a riot that breaks out that was started by none other than the Jews. They can't stand the sect sect called the Way, can they? It bothers them that something else is upstaging them. And so the riot begins, and they capture Jason and a few others who who was one of the 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 people who was a part of this group, one of the believers and and they bring them before the the governors of the city and and yet then they were released after a time after they had posted bail according to Acts chapter seventeen. Apparently, this was either actually literal money money or some sort of a peace agreement. We're not going to stir up any trouble. So Paul's in this city, Thessalonica, long enough to gain employment, we know, from 1 Thessalonians. And he's there long enough to receive gifts from Philippi, who had sent gifts multiple times to help Paul in his need. And um, so that takes place over a several month period. From there, Paul went to Berea, where he was persecuted, and he left Timothy and Silas there and moved on to Athens. And after he preached there, he went to Corinth, where he would stay for a really long time. And while he was in Corinth, a year after he had come to Thessalonica, set up the church, he's now in Corinth a year later, A.D. 51, and that's when he writes the first letter to the church at Thessalonica. So we've already gone through that. Uh, I think that was last year. But Paul was was eager to find out how that letter would be received because he wanted to explain some things that were a little bit unclear to them. Uh, Apparently there was some confusion about the day of the Lord and when that would take place. And so Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians to encourage them to continue in their faith and to help them to see that the coming of the Lord was near, but that they had to remain holy during this delay, during this time in which Jesus has not come, when He has not returned. And so He exhorts them in 1 Thessalonians to prepare themselves for the Lord's coming by living holy, that is, by living a holy life. So this second letter to the Thessalonians is also written by the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. And we'll see this. Paul and Silas, or excuse me, Paul and Silvanus, same same person, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul puts himself as the author along with Silvanus and Timothy. It sounds like they're writing it too, but I want you to see in chapter 3, verse 17, that he was actually just saying that they're a part of my group, not necessarily that they're writing it. Look at verse 17, the the second to last verse of the book. Chapter 3, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand 
And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. And um, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul specifically talks about a time when he had reminded them, do you not remember that while I was with you? So if Paul, Silas, and Timothy wrote it, we would expect him to say there, while we were still with you, we were telling you these things. But Paul's saying, I... And he says, I at the end. So I, I take it to be only Paul that wrote this letter, and he's simply just being kind. In fact, in First Thessalonians, if you look at that, it's also the, it also begins with Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So uh, Paul wrote this, and he wrote it just a few months after First Thessalonians. So he's still in Corinth. It's one year after he had been in the city of Thessalonica. Sent the first letter, and apparently... Uh, there was uh, uh, this letter that that came back to them just in a short time. Now, there's some debate as to which of these letters were first, which before studying this book, I I didn't really know. But look at chapter 2, verse 15, because we need to see that the order that we have here in our Bible, that it is 1 Thessalonians and 2, and they're not reversed. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So, you Thessalonians, you've already received a letter from us. And so this comes on the heels of that letter, and this indeed is the second letter. So why write another letter so quickly? Why write two letters to the same church within a span of three months. Did he forget about a few things in the first letter? You know, maybe the Holy Spirit didn't inspire everything that they needed to, to, to know in the first letter. I, I don't think that's the case at all. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Because Paul gets word back from the church there about what's going on. Chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each of you toward one another grows even greater. So, so see, we start to hear, we start to understand that Paul is receiving word back. Verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So, Paul got instant feedback as to how the church was doing. At least instant feedback as far as that goes in the first century. For us, instant feedback would be a live chat or text message that responds in a few seconds. But for them, the only way they could have that kind of instant feedback is if they were talking to those people in person. When they're away from them, they can't have the instant feed like, like we enjoy today. So this is about as instant as it gets for them. And apparently what happened was the the deliverer of the letter stuck around long enough at Thessalonica to have it read. Maybe he read it himself to that church and then found out what the response was. And what we see here in verses 3 and 4 that there was a good response, that they are growing even from the three months that they had received the first letter till the second letter when they're receiving it, they're growing. Their faith is growing even greater. But there's also some things that need to be cleared up. If you've read this book in advance, uh, you know 
that there are some things that need to be cleared up in their thinking. Look at verse 6. We'll start in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So here's one thing that Paul finds out about. There's some sort of persecution that's going on and it sounds like it's coming from within the church. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Stay away from those people, those so-called brothers who lead an unruly life. Look at verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Now, why would Paul say something like he does in verse 14 to someone who's outside of the church? Take special note of someone who's not responding to our letter. Well, that letter wasn't written for them. So the the implication in verse 14 here is is that this person actually is in the church. That these type of people are leading unruly lives and they're not wanting to follow Paul's instruction here. Take special note of him and don't have any association with him. And so Paul gets both the positive feedback and the negative feedback within three months and that would have prompted him to write this letter. But what Paul's But what is Paul's purpose in writing this second letter? Why write such a letter so quickly after the first letter had already been written? Well, I think we can say very simply that believers were confused about Paul's teaching about the end times. Believers were confused. And so Paul wanted to correct that. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, so they were confused about the day of the Lord. They thought with all this persecution that we're facing, it must have already come. This must be it. That This must be that tribulation he was talking about. And so Paul writes to clarify the events, some of the events of the day of the Lord, doesn't he? But he also wants to clarify what Christian living ought to look like in our daily lives. And that's what he does in chapter 3. He takes time to talk about how our faith ought to produce good works, not a passivity, a a laziness. I mean, he's going to say in here some pretty harsh words about those who are lazy. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And so he wants to clarify that the Christian life is actually a life of, of service. And so I would say that the bulk of this letter is given to showing believers how to stand firm in the midst of doctrinal and moral deviance. Showing believers how to stand firm in the midst of doctrinal and moral deviance. What do I mean by deviance? 
Well, in my statistics class in college, um, there is something that's called standard deviation. And so I hope you don't mind the little quiz or little uh, a little debriefer here on standard deviation. It's where you take a simple or, or a sample survey and you put all of the responses on the chart and they usually come out in dots. So let's say I worked at Dairy Queen and I wanted to track sales for the summer. And I want to know how much sales came in for each day of the summer. So I start over here on the first day of summer and I put a dot next to on the top part of the graph. That's the amount of money that comes in. So if I got in whatever amount, put a dot there, and then the next day here, and it kind of bounces all over the place, and you get to the end of the summer. And what a standard deviation does is it gives you an average line. So, so it sometimes during the summer, at the hottest point of the summer, it might be up here, but what it does is it kind of evens out all those dots. So if you can picture just kind of speckled pieces on the graph, then the standard deviation takes and makes it a line. That's called standard deviation in statistics. Now, if you left those dots on the line, some of those dots would be right next to the line. Some of them would be far away. And that's how average works, right? Sometimes you'll have days where it was uh, snowing in June or something. And so for some reason, people didn't want to have ice cream on that day. Or there could be other days where it's in the 90s or maybe the 80s and lots of people are out and around or maybe during a holiday and so the dots would be really high so in general we have this average of what takes place during that time but but overall those dots are all over the place and so this deviation this it is is basically telling us what is the norm or expectation what what should we expect so that next summer when it comes around what kind of days should we expect uh, people to be eating ice cream, for example. And Paul recognized that, we're, that there were some straying from the norm or the expectations of the Christian faith. So if we think of a walk of a Christian person, person as that line, he's saying that some people are way off the line. Some people are way up there. And what he was wanting was was a lot of dots that were closer to the line. The idea is that there's there are people that are following close to that would be uh, a low standard deviation. It's it's more predictable. It's actually easier to to predict something if you have all the dots near the line. But if all the dots are all over the place, it's what's called volatile or high deviation. So you never know what's going to happen on a given day because it could go anywhere. And what Paul saw was that that his expectation of what they ought to be doing in the Christian life was, was not in line. And so they were, they were out of line, either in some way doctrinally or morally. Doctrinally, they were unclear about the day of the Lord. They were hearing from someone apparently in their church that the day of the Lord had already come. And morally, some people were not working. And so let me just do a quick survey of the book with you so that we can see how the themes of the book play out for us. And this will serve as an outline for the book if you're interested. Chapter 1, Spiritual Fortitude. Spiritual Fortitude, Chapter 1. 
Paul wants to praise God for His sustaining grace in the midst of their persecution. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Paul was praising God for God's sustaining grace in the midst of their persecution, that they were standing firm. That's what chapter 1 is about. It's about standing firm in the midst of persecution. Chapter Chapter 2, verses 1-12 through 12, is about guarding against doctrinal deviance. Okay? Guarding against doctrinal deviance. And what he wants to show them there is that they ought not to be confused about the coming of the Lord as to when it will happen. And we already read verse 2. Don't let anybody shake you from your composure, composure or don't be disturbed by spirit or message that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't do that. Verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you. Okay, so spiritual fortitude, I'm thankful for what I've seen in you, but now I want you to understand and, and guard yourself against doctrinal deviance. And then chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, he, get, he speaks of confidence in their salvation. Look at verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through the sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So spiritual fortitude, he wants them to guard against doctrinal deviance, confidence in, he was confident in their salvation, and then number four, the need for sustaining grace in the spread of the gospel. The need for sustaining grace in the spread of the gospel. Chapter 3, verses 1-5. through five. The need for sustaining grace in spreading the gospel. Familiar passage here. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. And then, in chapter 3, verses 6-15, through 15, he encourages them to guard themselves against moral deviance. So, we had the guarding against doctrinal deviance about the day of the Lord particularly. Here it's guarding against moral deviance. And he encourages them or demands them to turn away from unruly church members. And then he concludes his letter with a greeting as he often does in verses 16 through 18. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is to go back to chapter 1 and explain the opening greeting verses 1 and 2, and then we'll conclude with some application for us. I mentioned that Paul is the author of this letter, but he also lists his partners in ministry because they were a part of the establishment of this work. They were there in Thessalonica in AD 50 when Paul came there on his second missionary journey. And so he wanted to show them that that they still had love and concern for that is, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had love and concern for the people in Thessalonica. And then notice he says in the last part of verse 1, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to go back to 1 Thessalonians 1.1, you'd find that this greeting is exactly the same except for two things. In 1 Thessalonians, it reads, 
in God the Father. And in 2 Thessalonians, notice verse 1, in God our Father. Charles Ryrie notes that this would, would have been especially comforting for a church who is suffering persecution. This is God our Father. He's concerned about you. He, he knows about your trials. He knows about your cares. And God our Father is, is the one in whom we send this letter. The second difference between this greeting and 1 Thessalonians is that Paul gives the source of the grace and peace that he talks about in verse 2. Notice, grace you and peace. So here he gives the source from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds them that God is the one to whom they must look for the grace and peace that they long for. That they can't drum up enough effort on their own. They need God, and we do too. The grace and peace that we long for as a body of believers is sourced in God. And so, in verse 1, the church is founded in God and the grace and peace that they need to be sustained is sourced in God. And so what Paul is showing them in this greeting is that everything they do from their very inception to their current state is about God and His sustaining and loving grace. So, stand firm in the midst of doctrinal and moral deviance. I think that's the point of the book of 2 Thessalonians. What do we do when church members or family members alongside of whom we have been standing for years start to deviate doctrinally or morally? What do we do? Paul knew what to do. He sent word to clear up misunderstanding about our Walk as Christians. Let me give you three ways that we need to respond to doctrinal and moral deviance. And we'll probably flesh some of these out as we go through the book. But three ways that we need to respond to doctrinal and moral deviance. Number one, we need to encourage the faithful. We need to encourage the faithful. The way that we encourage the faithful is by reminding and clarifying the truth of the Gospel. Reminding them and clarifying for them the truth of the Gospel. The glory of the Gospel. We want to help them see the beauty of the Gospel for those who love the Gospel. When people start to stray doctrinally and morally, faithful Christians will be resolved to grow in their strength and in the strength that God supplies. And so our responsibility when we start to see people stray, doctrinally or morally, is number one, to encourage the faithful. This is what Paul does. He sends a letter of encouragement to the faithful people. He doesn't send a letter to the unfaithful people. He doesn't say, this is directed at you who are turning these believers astray. Instead, he sends one to the faithful. And so here's a very clear implication that we can learn from the Apostle Paul that we ought to encourage those who are faithful when we start to see people turn away. Throughout the text, throughout this letter, he calls them brethren. And he talks about, like we just noticed in 
chapter 1, verse 1, he talked about our God. And so it would do us well to encourage one another for those who are still struggling and maybe are the recipients of this persecution or, or they're, they're involved some way in this straying. That is, that these people are straying or sending back um, attacks against the faithful in our church. And we need to help those faithful people remain resolved. And so we encourage them. Number two, how do we, how do we, how do we respond to moral and doctrinal deviance? Number two, we confront the sinner. Now I recognize that we are all sinners, and I, I often say this, just in when I'm talking about confronting sinners. Sometimes we can just make that our mission. Paul was aware of his own sin, but he didn't shy away. And this tends to be the extreme that we go to. We don't want to go to the extreme that, you know, I'm the Mr. Know-it-all, I'm the Mrs. Know-it-all, so I can just go around and tell everybody about their sin. I don't want to be that person. So, here's the other extreme. That's one extreme. The other extreme is, I'm not going to say anything about their sin. See, Paul recognized that he was a sinner. Did he not say, I'm the worst of sinners? One time he said, I'm the worst of all the apostles and the worst of all saints. And then at the end of his life, I'm the worst of all sinners. And yet, did Paul not confront sin and sinners? Okay, so there's a way to do it. When we do it, we need to guard our hearts, obviously, and make sure that we're doing it from proper motives and take the exhortation from our Lord to take out the beam of out of our own, own eye. So we confront the sinner. Paul did this in chapter 3, verses 6 and 14. Now, Paul did it indirectly because he, be, he believed and rightly so, that it was the church's responsibility to confront that sin. But he didn't just kind of pass over it. He, he acknowledged it and told them that it was a, bit, a big problem for them. So I would say that Paul confronted the sin and the sinner in integrity. We have to be careful about this because we can see other people's sin for some reason the way that... W- that sin works within us, we can see other people's sin much more clearly than we can see our own sin. I guess it would be like living in a life without mirrors. It's very easy for us to see what other people look like and kind of hard to see what we look like. What, what, what's on our face, you know? And so we have to be careful with this because the temptation can be to go around um, diagnosing everybody's problems, their sins, their ailments, while we're you know we're walking around with stage four cancer spiritually, and so we have to be careful with this. We we can't be unwilling to deal with our own sin. In fact, we should invite people to confront us of our sin. We should be willing to accept correction, and we should be the toughest judges so to speak, of ourselves, of our own sin. And um, so that, that requires a lot of work for us individually and corporately. We have to just guard ourselves. So encourage the faithful. When, when we see someone start to stray morally or, or doctrinally, encourage the faithful, confront the sinner, and then for ourselves, number three, stand firm. Stand firm. 
I think this is the main point of Paul's message in this letter. When people around you, whom you have known to be faithful, who have walked while you have seen to be faithfully for years, and now who are living unfaithfully, I would just warn you and encourage you to guard your own heart. Don't probably look on and say, that could never happen to me. Or, I could see that coming. I would never do something like that. I would suggest that when you make a statement like that, or you have that sort of thinking in your mind, then the catastrophic sin of turning away from God is beginning to form. Because 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, If you think you are standing firm, take heed lest you fall. Or to put it another way, in light of what we looked at in Ephesians 6, when you drop your armor and think, I don't need to depend upon God anymore. I don't need to put on the truth of God's Word. I don't need to put on righteousness. And I don't need to be putting on all these pieces with prayer. I don't need to depend on God. Then I would say that you are one step away from denying Him. Stand firm through dependence upon God. Guard your own heart. When you see them stray, first thought ought not to be, well, they're on a lower plane than I am. That would never happen to me. The nature of sin is that it is self-deceiving and it is self-destructive. And if you start to make statements like that, like you cannot fall, then take heed. Friends, we can't get away from doctrinal and moral deviance, can we? There will be people who sprout up and appear to be something that's going to produce some fruit. And they'll turn out to be unfaithful. You've seen it. If you've been a Christian a long time, you've already seen it. There will be people who destroy their marriages There will be people who give up on God. And it could happen to one of us. It could happen to all of us. And we have to stay strong. We need to encourage one another when the seedlings of doubt and abandonment of faith start to grow. We need to encourage one another. We need to confront sin. We need to be serious about sin like God is serious about sin. And we need to acknowledge our need to depend on God so that having done all, we will stand firm against moral and doctrinal deviance. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would soften our hearts to the truth of Your Word. Help us understand more clearly the day of the Lord and when that will begin. Help us to understand and be encouraged by our own faithfulness, but not to be proud, not to take boasting in our own efforts, but to boast in nothing else except for the cross of Jesus Christ, in Him crucified and in His resurrection. And Lord, we pray that You'd help us to do the serious responsibility that we have to confront sin. 
Lord, You know that there will come times when people who are members of our church begin to turn away morally or doctrinally or both. And one of the hardest things to do as a Christian is to show genuine love to them, which means to point them to You and away from their sin. People in their sin don't like to be told about it. And yet we have a clear responsibility as this letter shows to remove ourselves from unruly brothers and sisters, people who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ. So I pray that You'd help us to be able to do that. And then for each of us here and us as a church as a whole, that we would stand firm, that we would depend upon You, upon the armor that You supply, the strength that You supply to be strong in You and in the strength of Your might, put on the whole armor that You have provided and put each piece on with prayer. Help us to depend on You constantly. Pray for one another regularly. And pray for ourselves uh, without ceasing. Help us, Lord, even tonight as we reflect on the needs of our church. May we think of the spiritual needs first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.